everyone, welcome back to the Capsule in Conversation. I'm Natalie Anderson and this week I'm joined by actress and activist Bavna Limbachia as we talk diversity, fashion design and doing the right thing. So settle down, turn us up and get ready to join in with our conversation. Hello lovely people, how are you all doing out there? Have you been cocktail drinking in bars or have you been keeping yourself locked down? I don't know about you but I'm still finding this time a little bit strange. I can't decide if I'm quite ready to get back out into the real world or if I've become accustomed to our new normal. There's been something about isolation that at times I personally have found very comforting. Just closing the door and the rest of the world and being in your own space has been a bit of an eye-opener for me. However, I am not isolating today and I know I'm going to have a lovely time as I'm joined by the gorgeous Bavna Limbachia. Hi, Bavna. Hi, Natalie. Oh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited. <laughs> oh, no, it's such a pleasure to have you. It's, oh, I feel like it's been ages since I last saw you. Yeah, it really has. It's, it's so strange because it's, it's just so nice to see a familiar face. Uh, I've only <laughs> ever just seen Darren's face, so it's like... <laughs> quite refreshing to kind of interact with other people apart from your zoom quiz parties that you have um but so yeah it's really nice <laughs> well listen you've just said that you were isolating with your husband Darren who's also an actor how have you found that have you are you finding it even are you, are you still locked in have you ventured out well we haven't killed each other yet so that's a plus <laughs> um been okay I think initially it was it was quite overwhelming and I felt quite anxious not knowing um what was going on being undated with all this news feed um, on, and the uncertainty that was quite daunting at times but I think we soon settled into a routine and and once we did it kind of in a way lived on our own little world like you were saying earlier and um it has been quite eye-opening um, I'm, I've surprised myself I've discovered new things that I enjoy doing I have revisited old hobbies um, I took up sign language oh, I've wow. just completed my diploma in sign language and I'm about to take my exam in level one which I've something I've always wanted to do but I've never had the time to do it I've just really enjoyed it and I think having structure to the, to the day has really helped and yeah and just trying to painting again I haven't painted um, I did I studied art and I haven't painted for 12 years so that was quite nice but I think we consider ourselves very lucky that we have each other to rely on and don't get me wrong I've had my off days every couple of weeks I had a bit of cabin fever or I felt quite anxious and I think it's been really important to communicate that with Darren and, and we have a support system uh, with each other so I have been very lucky you know what that has been for me the biggest eye-opener as well actually being 24 7 with your other half or or with your children you know has been I found that we've actually as a family got on more because we've understood each other more and we kind of all those outside pressures have been excluded like taken away from us so we've actually found a way to talk and a way to communicate you know nicely kind of not just in snippets and quick bites but just times to actually have a conversation about how you're feeling you know about how our son's feeling how my husband's feeling we never have time for that we never have time to really go through somebody's emotions we're just too quick and too busy so I've equally found that really what's the word pleasurable I think that's the only word for it for me yeah and it is quite comforting because like yourself you know when you're an actor you can be on tour and this is the longest we've spent together since we've been married because Darren's always on tour. So 
the most I get is the odd day at the weekend or the odd week here and there and it's coming up to two years and this literally is the longest we've been together so it's been nice it's almost like we've started our marriage finally after all this time I get that I said to James funnily enough you know I was away a lot when Fred was very little and I didn't really see him that often. And to have this family time, I said, I feel like we've started all over again. And it's weird that, isn't it? It's, it's kind of just that must have been how it was back in the, back in the day before people went off traveling. <laughs> like that's how they ended up with 50 year marriages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So true. And also playing board games. I haven't done that since I was a kid and, it's actually been quite nice. I had my birthday in lockdown in April and I have to say it was the best birthday ever. Donna decorated the house, we played board games, we went to a little lake and had champagne. It was lovely. Oh, that <laughs> sounds absolutely beautiful. Oh, well done, Darren. <laughs> now, most people, Daphne, um, would recognise you for playing your, uh, for your amazing work on Coronation Street, you know, playing the trailblazing role of Rana, a character that we will discuss a little later on, and obviously the importance of all of her storylines. But you've actually been in the industry for so many years. I mean, you've been in Doctor, Citizen Khan, Casualty, BBC's Pramface, which I loved. Um, however, this wasn't really the route that you'd originally intended, was it? I mean, you actually did your degree in costume design. Yeah, um, so I think I've always enjoyed acting, um, even as a child, but I was scared. And I, I, I do come from quite a creative extended family. A lot of my family are graphic designers and fashion designers. So it was very natural for me to go into that field of work. Um, and what I did is I, I studied fashion. I did art, then studied fashion and photography, and then later went on and combined my two loves for performing arts and costume, fashion, and then uh, came up with costumes. So, yeah, I think... I had many influences um, and what I loved about exploring that was I, ha- I could use the influences of my culture because I'm, I'm coming from an Indian background, getting to wear these gorgeous elaborate saris and stuff. So I was, I was very lucky in that sense. And it was a definitely a great avenue. I'm, I'm so glad I did do that. It's almost like I did my B plan first. So if the acting doesn't work out, can I always go back to costume? <laughs> Well, yeah, because I mean, I was going to say, you know, obviously you've explained then, you know, there's a lot of um, culture in in the designing side of things and the fashion side of things. And was exploring that side of the culture of your culture that really kind of you wanted to take that further? And as you said, I suppose there's a little bit of fear that perhaps acting was what was it? Was it a little bit more insecure, um, not secure enough or just... Yeah, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, if I'm being completely honest, with the acting, I was petrified. I thought I was so young. I knew from a very young age. I was four years old and I was like, I was this little dramatic kid that just wanted to be an actress. The older I got, I think the fear started sinking in. And if I'm honest, it was one, I was dyslexic. So I thought it's something I wouldn't be able to ever tackle a script and text. And another was being from a single parent working class background I felt like it was out of reach Um, and it was only when I worked in costume and worked in the industry and I did start whilst I was at university I did start working on films from from then from the age of 19 so it has been quite a long time and and what I loved I think with with being in um, the creative field of costume I just love it's like the art and fashion it's subjective there's no right or wrong way to do it and I soon became obsessed with the history of costume and and how like for example Mahatma Gandhi was a well-educated man and he wear the loincloth to communicate a message to the illiterate in India and I remember becoming 
quite obsessed with the history of of costume in the community and how we can use that as a tool to communicate a message and then I became obsessed with again with the influences of like the embroidery and the Indian um, intricate details of costumes I wore it, I think that's what made me go into sort of period costumes and then that's how I ended up going into um, doing the degree in costume design and making corsets and like obsessed with the 17th century period costumes and it started from there. I mean that is just truly fascinating and I suppose as an actor, we we do all well. Most most act, actors that I know, we the costume side of things is so integral to the character, to the psychology of the character. It speaks volumes, and I mean, obviously, that transcends across to fashion in daily life. You know, you can look at a person, and their personality is shining out purely from the the armor, the clothes that they've cho- chosen to put on. So I love the fact that you know, as you've said, then when you've studied Gandhi, that um, the the way that he used clothes to kind of speak his message to to other people I just that for me is completely fascinating and from a research point of view um moving into acting is that something else then that you've now kind of not not just the costume but the other side of the research within acting whether it be you know the the career that a person might have you know if they're a doctor and you have to go and really research that kind of stuff just combining that element of really learning as an actor have you, you enjoy that Oh yeah, definitely. I think I've always seen costume as the second skin of an actor. And I definitely think that, uh, I know that Kath touched on it in your last podcast about creating this character, putting on costume, it does sort of change your form, it changes your body language, and you can immediately get into that. And um, with acting, I think as actors, we have to be vulnerable and we have to be open and vulnerable to the circumstances that we're presented with so it is our responsibility to go away and research and really get to know a character and I and I love that process I think the more I worked backstage or behind the camera I felt like that that it just I needed to scratch this itch I had and I I remember receiving a call from a costume designer about a job, a, a BBC drama, and she was telling me about you know, the schedule and, and how much I'd get and expenses. And something inside me just said, you can't regret something you didn't do. So I thought it just, it just doesn't make sense. So I remember at the end of the conversation, just politely saying, thank you, but no thank you. And I put the phone down. I got a nine till five. I, um, to just and fund marketing classes and then got an agent and took it from there and it was just plucking up the courage to do it I mean that is brave considering that you'd spent that many years training in costume and as you said you know made corsets worked on sets kind of built it up yeah that is a long time to dedicate to a field and then kind of go yeah I'm not going to do that bit of it I mean obviously it's it is an industry thing because you were working in the industry so would you say that that was your turning point of then going, I'm now going to, as you said, scratch, scratch the itch and pursue acting? Um, tell me about that, those next steps. Like, what did you do then after that phone call? After the nine to five, where did you go for the so, classes? Um, so, yeah, I went to the Manchester School of Acting and did some uh, evening workshops and classes. I couldn't afford to go back to uni because I had the debt from doing the costume degree and student <laughs> loan, um, as we all have. So um, I knew that I had to start again from scratch. I was petrified. I was petrified. But I think making that transition from costume to acting was a real eye-opener for me because 
when I went for a job interview for a costume job for for a show, I would take my portfolio and I'd take like my corsets and costumes that I'd made and I'd be judged solely on my skills. But with acting, it was a bit of a shock because that was only one factor. Your skill is only one factor, one element of booking the job. It could be your appearance. You could be too tall, too short, too fat, too thin. And I remember earlier on going for an audition. Um, it was for a drama. And the producers looking very confused and sort of looking over at each other um, and at each other. And then they tentatively said to me, oh, so um, uh, what's your background? And, and I'd say, um, well, um, I'm Indian. I'm, are you fully Indian? I'm like, yeah, but, well, what are your parents? And I'd say, well, my mum's Indian and my dad's from Kenya, but of Indian origin. And I'd then be told, oh, you're just a bit too pale for the job. So it wasn't, I didn't look Indian enough. And I remember walking out almost laughing, going, that's just literally out of my reach. There's, there's, that's out of my control. There's nothing I could have done about that. I mean, I, that's literally just brought me on to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was about your experience of diversity within the industry and your heritage. You've just explained it there that, you know, you've clearly felt limited by your heritage. I mean, I, I have in, in the sense that I've gone up for roles um, in period dramas and been too foreign looking. And it's it's kind of infuriating because you train don't you? you 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 work hard you you know you can do a role but then you, you either put in a certain bracket of well you're the foreign person or if you if you're northern you're the maid so you know it's like I was just wondering and, and you've just kind of answered me there of of representation and diversity in the industry. I, I spoke to Shobna Galati on my last series and she'd explained some of the things that she'd come up against and the fact that she was never almost able to go for those leading lady jobs. Have, have you found that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think earlier on, it was a hard pill to swallow to know that, you know, coming from a costume background, I would never be cast back then in a period drama and be able to wear these beautiful costumes and period costumes and corsets that I would once make. Um, so that was difficult. And like you said, like Shobna was saying, it's we weren't going to be ever cast as, in a period drama or as, as the lead. I did find that difficult, like I said, making that transition, be already working in the industry and then being judged on my look. And something that really came up was um, not only just being Indian, is what part of India my family were from. And I was referred to as a Gucci. As soon as I started acting, I, I was a Gucci. And I was like, what is a what's a Gucci? Like, oh, you're Gujarati, aren't you? You can tell by your name, you're, you're a Gujarati. And I used to find that really, I was really confused by that. I thought, I'm just an actress and I'm, and, and I'm proud of my heritage and I'm proud of being um, British. But I think with diversity, the, the problem within the industry we still do have is that the problem starts at the top uh, with the producers and the writers. If there isn't enough diversity at that level, how is it then going to be filtered down and how a BAME actor is going to have this opportunity uh, and tell these stories. We have a lot of stories to tell and we are just as talented, surprisingly. It's, it's, it's almost like we were sort of, I think, but in a way, on the flip side, I do believe that things are changing and thankfully colorblind casting is becoming more normalised and apparent now. Um, and I think there was a time, but I, I, there are times when 
you want to fight against that, but you also want to be represented. So it's almost like you have to find a balance and not be pigeonholed, but have that representation. And I think that is an internal struggle that a lot of ethnic, ethnic actors do feel. Um, I remember doing a job, uh, booking a police drama, and the, the character had a very generic name. It was like Jane or Carol or something. I can't remember. But um, when I booked the job, um, a producer called me and said, do you mind if we change the name of the character to suit you? And I was like, okay. And it was earlier on in my acting career. So I was like, okay, that's fine. A few weeks later, I went down to London for a costume fitting. And I remember putting this police um, uniform on and the bulletproof vest and the, and, and the handcuffs and the baton and feeling really powerful and ready to take on the job and feeling really confident. And I remember the costume designer turning around and going, oh, one minute, and just popped a hijab on my head with a police hat on top. And I was just shocked oh, okay, this wasn't discussed with me and now this character's Muslim, okay. And then as we went on filming each episode, they added prayer scenes in there um, of, of me in my uniform praying. Now, although it, I guess it was a powerful image of representation, it was irrelevant to the script. It was and unnecessary. Also, that's a huge part of your development for the character. That is a huge thing. Like that would change so many things, the choices that you might make as a as an actor. If you know that your, you know, your background or your religion is Muslim, then that is going to really alter the way that you play a certain character because you know you've got certain, the character will have certain beliefs and certain things that will be more important to them than maybe the next person. So to do that at kind of just without discussing it with you or just as oh, I, don't, I find that really uncomfortable. I found that really uncomfortable that you weren't able and given the chance to kind of really explore that character and that character's background fully before just being told, almost like, oh, well, we've decided this now. Yeah, it was it was difficult. And if I'm honest, I lost my confidence in that job and I don't feel like I did, I did my best. Um, now looking back, I just wish I was brave enough to say no, because that's the only power I had. And I was too scared because I was so new to acting and I'd started obviously later on in life. So yeah, in hindsight, I wish I did speak up, but I think now people are speaking up and that is really important. It's very important. I, I literally just spoke about this not long ago on somebody else's podcast about how as actors we're conditioned to almost be disposable and we feel like, oh, well, oh, you don't want to do it. Well, we'll replace you then. And it's funny. I watched Judy the film and, and I'm late I was late to the party but it really explores how um, Judy Garland's childhood and her kind of the nurturing through the studio process affected her long-term mental health and how she was you know conditioned into believing that no matter what you get on set and you do it and you don't speak out and you know there's some quite uncomfortable scenes in there with Louis B. Mayer who was the studio boss and she was a 15 year old girl and they made it very telling that if she didn't toe the line she'd be replaced by Shirley Temple or something and I think and that was happening back in the 30s and I think that's continued to happen for a very long long time all through right up until now actually right up until this very modern era that as actors we are conditioned to you just get on with it and you don't speak out because if you do well you'll lose your job and I expect I expect that's even harder as well you know if 
if you're from a different background or an ethnic minority and you're really uncomfortable with something, it's hard enough to get to the table at times. So to then speak up is you're kind of putting yourself really on the line. And do you know what I mean? It's kind of becomes a catch 22 vicious circle almost. What do you do? Um, but I do think moving forward, I'm really pleased to see so many conversations happening around diversity in the industry and around you know, the BBC just said um, this week that they're dedicating £100 million to funding for um, diverse creativity. And I think that's brilliant for me personally. It's, we need to hear and see people. Representation needs to be reflected on screen and in theatre and not just tick the ethnic box and say, well, we've got that one BAME actor, we don't need another one. Because if you were to go outside in 2020 today, the chances of you seeing more than one person of colour is highly likely. So why not reflect that? Because it's not, right now, it's not a true representation um, of demographics of, of people of colour in the country. This is a multicultural country and it, and it should be reflected in the industry. Oh, completely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we mentioned in your introduction, um, we mentioned it then, but I, I wanted to expand kind of on your role of, as, as Rana in Coronation Street, you know, when we think about diversity and representation. I mean, for me, that portrayal of that character was just absolutely stunning. It really was, Badness, so brilliantly done. And, you know, your relationship with um, Faye Brooks, who played your girlfriend, Kate, on the show was just... I mean, for me, it was a bit of a game changer in terms of representation. Just take me back to the kind of the start of it all and, you know, going in for that character. How, how was she presented to you on the page when you were going in? She was the complete opposite. So Rana, um, they, brought, they brought Rana, me as Rana, uh, the character, who was this vivacious, man-eater, compartigo, rebellious Muslim. Her religion wasn't necessarily a big thing to her. And I remember... A few months in, I felt like the character didn't really have much depth. And so I requested to have a meeting with the producers just to ask. And I wanted to go in to the meeting with uh, solutions as to problems because I didn't quite understand her. Because I think they had different ideas. When I originally auditioned for Brana, they had different ideas about the character. And then halfway through, they decided to switch it. So I was playing the character another way, like one way where... I had this agenda where she was hiding something. Then they decided to scrap that idea and say, actually, she gets with Zidane and falls in love, but is still this party girl who just wants to get him into bed. So I think there was a transitional period when I did join from Stuart Blackburn to KOs. So in that time um, of having those meetings, I then um, met Kate Oates. And if I'm honest, she was a godsend and she was a breath, there's a breath of fresh air and she was willing to take a risk with me. So she actually approached me with the idea of, threw a curveball actually and said, how do you feel about Rana being gay? And it's the last thing I expected her to say. I was like, what? She's a, she would flirt with a pen if she could. What? She, she would eat everyone alive. So um, for me, I think my main request was we have to play this out in real time. It can't just, she can't just wake up one day and go, oh, I think I'm gay. Because that's not how it works. We have to play the truth of it and play it out in real time. And that's what we, we did. I've been in a similar situation to you with Kate in the sense that when I was at Emmerdale, you know, she was threw me a huge curveball of my final storyline. And you do feel a certain responsibility and a, and a privilege that you're trusted with those kind of um, storylines. 
Were you nervous at all of, of taking that on? Because, you know, people do often confuse you with your character when you've lived and worked in a soap. People often go, they'll, they'll address you as the character's name. They think it's you. And particularly given that you, you know, you were playing a Muslim women, woman and now she was going to be gay. Did you really consider kind of the, the greater repercussions of that for you? Yeah, I think what had happened is um, when I had the meeting with Kate Oates, she, she was worried and concerned about offending the Muslim community. And I said, look, she said, I need your help. So I, off I went. I did a lot of research. I discovered loads of forums about uh, marriage and convenience. And that's where the dance storyline came up with the whole restaurant and speed dial. Um, I felt like it was important to educate myself because I was so unaware of the, the struggles of the LGBTQ plus community go through. And I remember through, through doing all the research um, and, and sending it all to Kate Oates, I said, look, we have to play the truth of this issue. If we play the truth, no one can argue with the truth. So that was the direction we took it in. And I'm glad we did because so much has come out of it and we raised so much awareness and, um, and I, and I really think that um, as an actor, you, you do have a sense of responsibility and it didn't sit right with my moral compass to, to sit back and do nothing and say, well, this is just my job and I can go home and switch off. The more I researched, the more I realized just how serious it is, how suicidal people could be, how it affects their mental health. I have zero tolerance of any form of discrimination. And I felt like it was my duty to use my platform to raise awareness. And I'm so grateful that they took that chance on me and it was tough it was hard uh, emotionally draining at times it wasn't something I could just after they said cut I could just switch off because I would just sometimes go behind the set and just bore my eyes out because I knew I was playing someone else's truth this is reality for some people this is a living nightmare for people feeling depressed and trapped and bullied and you know, just isolated by their own family. So yeah, I think it was really important. And I'm so glad I did go out of my way to educate myself and raise awareness. Did it have any effect on you on your own mental health? Like on, you know, that coming out of that character and having put yourself through all of, you know, that anxiety, depression, and, you know, you're playing that, as you said, that other person's truth. So when you come back to, to being Bavna, did you find any, you know, it's, it's hard to take that coat off, isn't it? It's hard to kind of suddenly go back to being you and realise, actually, this isn't my life. My life is this. Were you, did you carry any of that through to, to your own life? Yeah, it was difficult because I did actually get quite ill from it at one point because, I mean, I was, I was stressed out in my personal life anyway. I was getting married, buying a house, heavily in storyline, crying on set every day all day so I did feel like it did affect me because your body doesn't know when it's acting if you're crying they are real tears and so my body started retaliating and producing a lot of acid because my body was stressed and I actually ended up in hospital and had, had to have a week off work because I was exhausted physically mentally emotionally but I could not and I, w I wish I could fake it but I, I'm just not one of them actors that can and sometimes I had to physically remove myself from certain situations and have time out to recover because it was such an important storyline. And I think it made me, as an actor, it made me grow and have the utmost respect for the art. It's, it's hard. I, 
I have been there myself and I know I really struggled like a lot when my son was very little at the time and for me I I just couldn't shake off some of the character and the storyline and I was bringing it into the house and I found that very difficult because as you say your body doesn't know you kind of trick your body into feeling and being in these situations and rightly so when you are telling such an important storyline and it does give you a deeper understanding and a a real sense of compassion for people that are genuinely going through such horrific experiences where they do feel trapped and bullied and you know suicidal you it then because of the effect it has on you it does make you really want to speak out and really become passionate about the subject which you have absolutely done you know you've done so much for the lgbtq community for like you and faye together and particularly for the muslim members of that community what you did by portraying that beautiful relationship on screen was really highlight you know, the importance of that storyline and the importance of that, those, those two people. I mean, from that, you've obviously gone on to do kind of a lot of, a lot more work with the community and you become, you know, the foundation of the Naz and Matt Foundation. You're a patron of that, which is an amazing foundation and was set up by, by Matt Ogston um, after his fiance Nazim took his own life because of, he was in such a difficult situation with his family, not accepting his sexuality. I mean, tell me a bit more about kind of the kind of work that you do with the foundation of like raising more awareness. Yeah, I think Matt has just been amazing. Um, they, he has helped, a lot of people have approached him about the difficulties in their sexuality that they're having and from coronation street from watching the show and may and and i thought and being aware of the nazmats foundation because i felt like that was really important to when i read their story i i just was it really hit me hard and i thought i can't sit back and not do something about this these people are frightened they need a voice we can't lose any more lives so I was so relieved to to find the Nazamats and discover the Nazamat Foundation. And um, Matt does do a lot of workshops around around schools and colleges and a lot of talks and presentation. And it is about educating people. And their main focus is to tackle homophobia triggered by religion and help parents support their children. And a lot of it is, especially within the Asian community, is they find it difficult to accept their children because they don't understand it. They don't understand what it means to be gay. And because they don't understand it, they dismiss it. They, they neglect, they, they disown their children. And it's awful. And what I love about the foundation is they are raising awareness. And they've also got the um, Out and Proud Parents Day on the 30th of July that they um, host every year now. And that gives an opportunity for parents to talk about their experiences. And also Matt's um, developed a book as well uh, to help people and parents. And we're also in talks of uh, maybe putting leaflets around communities, especially the Asian communities, into mosques, into temples, into doctor's surgeries, and translating all the information in Punjabi, in Urdu, in Gujarati. So people have that information and have access to that information and understand it to know that there is help out there. Because I think education, educating these people is, is key because they're afraid of it. They're afraid of the unknown. That's what it is. I absolutely agree with you. And I think education is key in all areas of discrimination. I mean, stories need to be told for people to learn lessons, for people to understand, for people to have compassion, for people to 
have have heart and be open-minded and you know I think we're seeing that across the world now more than ever obviously you know reignited with the Black Lives Matter movement after the murder of George Floyd I I have been worried that you know those conversations will start to teeter out and that we won't we won't keep the conversation going and it's really important that we do it's so important that we do you know even even if it's weeks down the line just keep it going because it's the only way that we will make real change is if we make, get it into the mainstream and keep having these chats. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think it's extremely important. We keep the conversations open and going. Um, I've had to go away and educate myself. There are so many things during this movement I have discovered and I'm quite sickened by. I mean, the last, the last human zoo in Brussels closed in 1958. Some of those young children who, who visited those human zoos are still alive now. I mean, women in, I remember seeing something I posted yesterday, women in America who are in imprisonment, black women have been, I guess they haven't been forced, but they've been pushed to be sterilized because the government don't want to play, pay for the offspring. It's like, if you're going to give up on them, right, they're, they're never going to really have a second chance if this is given, if, if, if people just give, give up on them. And it's a form of suppression and that needs to stop because this really did resonate with me. I will never understand the extreme of what the African-Americans go through on a daily basis and how severe it is. But racism, systemic racism is still live and kicking today, especially in the industry. This is a really hard thing for me to say because I've never said it before. I've never really talked about it. Even when I've experienced it, I have avoided doing interviews or podcasts because I was too scared to speak out. I think now is the time I've, I've had and been faced with limitations because I'm a woman of colour. And it's so empowering now to see people coming forward in, in the industry and speaking up about their experiences. And I hope it continues and inspires other people because the racism I've experienced myself has, has broken me at times. It really has. I remember um, being rushed onto set for a job I, I remember saying, I'm, I'm not in this scene. I don't understand. Why am I being rushed into set? They took me to the studio. The runner took me to the studio, rushed me, rushed me, panicked me, panicked the makeup artist, get me out of the chair, only to realise that they'd got the wrong bay mattress or my costume would be in the other bay mattress's room or I would be giving her scripts. I never once got an apology. And that was quite harsh. And I don't think people purposely mean to be rude or racist or ignorant. It is just ignorance. Even on set, I've, I've had times where I've experienced things and it is just conversation, it's in conversations with cast members, you know, we could be talking about, I don't know, body hair. And I remember one actress saying to me, oh, I'm surprised you can see the, the hairs on your arms because your skin's so dark. And I don't think people necessarily mean to be rude, but it is ignorant. And there were times when I'd have people saying, oh, well, you're already going to award ceremonies because you're skinny and pretty, being completely unaware of how privileged they are. And I've had to work 10 times harder just to be not even 100%, but just be 80% equal to them. And they have the privilege of walking to their pigeonholes, picking up their scripts and going on set. I would stay up till five o'clock in the morning doing research to try and do justice to my storyline, to try and prove that this is, you know, to give, you've given me this opportunity, I'm going to take it. It does, if it means me working 10 times harder, so be it. And it was, it was really hard at times because it's almost like you had took a step forward and 10 steps back and you were always reminded that you were different. For example, there were times when 
myself and other BAME actors on a show wouldn't be chosen to be on front cover of certain magazines. And that was hard because we didn't understand why at the time. We knew what it was, but we didn't want to accept that actually they don't want Asian people on the cover of their magazines. It, they don't sell as much as if you were to have a Caucasian person. And that was hard. And I think what was disheartening was knowing that no one stood up for us. No one said, oh, well, you've used that actress or those handful of actresses three times on the cover. This, I have a BAME actress who is heavily in storyline, is popular. Why can't we use them? And what that did is it does affect your mental health because you feel like you're not good enough. You feel you're not worthy of them. You are made to feel like you're not equal. And if I'm being completely honest, this is the very first time I'm saying this publicly, there are times when I go to bed and cry myself to sleep because I wasn't worthy of that. I felt like I wasn't, I felt like I was being punished for the color of my skin. And that was really a hard pill to swallow. And that's why I think it's so important to have these conversations, to have these uncomfortable conversations, because we have spent too, far too long being made to feel uncomfortable. And the things changed for me when I realized this isn't a fight. I don't have to or should not have to fight for my space in the industry or fight to be equal. This is my absolute right to be here. I started seeing that it wasn't a fight. It was my right to be here. I am so proud of my heritage, but I'm also very proud of being British. I laugh and cry the bleed and bleed the same way. So to be made to feel different felt quite isolating at times. I completely understand all of what you just said, Bavna. And, you know, it's, you see people have flippant conversations and, you know, and, 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 it, and things that get said kind of, they, they're hurtful and they do, you know, cut deeply. And then you kind of laugh it off because you want to just be part of the conversation and you don't want to be deemed difficult or make a problem because it took you twice as long to get there in the first place. I mean, I, I remembered when I was doing the Royal and my first block there te was televised. And I remember somebody putting on a forum that I, I shouldn't be playing the role that I was playing because I was playing the role of a British nurse. And he said, um, this person said, oh no, she's Ghanaian. She's from Ghana. She must be. The color of her skin, she must be. And I remember from that moment onward thinking, I was too tanned for that role and I shouldn't be playing it because it was the 1960s and that just wasn't, that wasn't right. So I kept having this bit of a chip on my shoulder that I didn't deserve to be there. And it was from other people's conversations that it, it sticks with you. I was having a conversation with an amazing girl, Esther Yamea, who runs a fabulous podcast called the Female Magic Podcast. And she explained to me how from being very young at primary school, because her father um, was African, she was told, her mother was told, who was a white woman, that she wouldn't ever achieve higher than a grade C at school. And this is, this is present day, this is now, like this girl is 26 years old. And I, I just couldn't believe it when she said it to me. I said, so from being small, you are basically being conditioned that you're not good enough 
you're not good enough. So is it any wonder that people have mental health problems, that they get upset, that they feel limited? Because, and then there is a fight because you are working twice as hard to prove yourself, to educate yourself, to be the best to go home, like you say, and work on your scripts till five o'clock in the morning. And for Esther, you know, she went and she's made this incredible business and she's really, she's, she's used that, those kind of um, conversations that her mom had to really drive her, got a degree. She's a journalist. And because you feel like you constantly have to prove yourself and prove that you're worth it and prove to have your place. Whereas you say, it's your right to have that place. It's it, you deserve that place. You've every right to be there. And I'm wondering after what you just kind of said, I'm wondering if, you know, within equity, you've obviously got an equity debt on most jobs. I think that that should be a BAME representative as well. Yes, I did. I did actually discuss that recently with a friend of mine who still works on a show. And I said, look, there has to be a voice because sometimes when you are trying to express something and a non-BAME actor doesn't un- quite understand because they don't understand they can be quite dismissive so it is very important to have that representation we shouldn't have to but unfortunately that's the way it is that's the only way we can move forward is to be equally represented and across the board even in not just with acting we're conditioned to, th- to think a certain way because of what we see in the press so even with journalism or even with fashion we need to up our game we need to represent equally because otherwise nothing's going to change well that's it nothing's going to change and you know you get used to kind of I, I've talked about this on the podcast before of, of representation in the media of um, people of different different ethnic minorities or just in general anybody whether it's body shape size as well I find it so hard when I'm putting editorial together for the capsule, I find it really hard to often get anything, um, any imagery that doesn't contain a Caucasian white woman. If I'm looking for something, anything else, it could be, I just want to, you know, the topic of anything, it could be well-being, it could be anything. Every image that's presented to me is predominantly a white woman, either doing yoga or whatever. And I'm like, what? There's not only white women that do, whether it's yoga, whatever, just normal, normal life. Where, where are the, all the other people and where are all the other photographs and where are all the other, where's all the different representation? If I'm, if, if I'm ever doing a beauty piece, I'll often look for, for different women. And I think there's only ever been one time where I've seen a woman of colour or a woman wearing a hijab even, just as a, as a Muslim woman. I've never seen in terms of the beauty diversity and the representation, what, what I go on and I look for for the pictures, very few. And we have to change that. We have to be accessible all across the board so that when I'm going to pick a picture, there's so many different faces that I can pick, not just one particular type of woman. Yeah, and it shouldn't have to even be a, an issue or yeah. you shouldn't have to make a conscious effort to find that. It should be there. Um, I think things are moving forward, um, even in the fashion industry. I remember... Um, being backstage once of a fashion show and the makeup artists were spending a lot of time on the Caucasian models because they wanted a particular look for the catwalk collection and a black Afro-Caribbean woman came and model came and sat down and they had beautiful skin absolutely gorgeous stunning and they put some eyeliner on her and said oh you're done because they didn't actually have a foundation to match her skin tone and I, I, I saw the look on her face and it 
I was just broken by it. And also on acting jobs as well. When I've been in, in, in different jobs and I've been in the makeup room, a lot of the um, black actresses always bring their own foundation because the chances of actually having a color match is very limited. That is a problem. They should not have to do that. We need to normalize it. It should not be an issue. I've got another guest coming up um, who is an amazing, amazing aesthetic um, clinician. She's brilliant. And that's that's an area that we're going to talk about is the representation of black skin within the beauty industry. And it's something that she talks an awful lot about, about how there's little representation. Um, people are afraid to do procedures or treatments on black skin because there's so many connotations that go with that. And I'm really excited to be talking to her all kind of about that area and what we can do and where where change needs to start how we can move forward with that so I mean that will be coming up in a couple of weeks um and she's absolutely brilliant but you're you're completely right when I was reading all of her notes and I was reading all of her findings I was like how how is this even still happening now in the 21st century that as you say a black actress or, or model will turn up to a job and not be be catered for in the makeup department it's just I find it incredible I mean just moving on slightly if we go back to fashion actually I mean you you were the ambassador of the Manchester Fashion Festival and obviously given that you know design is kind of where you started I mean how how important was that role to you to have for, for Manchester and for for you know the the local talent there the regional talent yeah, I think it was really important um, to celebrate Manchester's um, talent and the diverse community that we do live in. Um, the North, I'd say, can be excluded sometimes from the fashion scene. Like London is the fashion capital. But if you look at, like, so if you go out in Leeds or in Manchester or in Liverpool, there is so much diversity like, and creative people out there. And I think it's really important to celebrate that and support that and celebrate young up-and-coming talent, definitely. And also, um, we were just saying before, I mean, this year in particular has been, it's been quite scary for designers. You know, obviously they're used to presenting two collections every year, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And this year, for the first time, Fashion Week went digital in June. I'll be honest, I... from a buyer's point of view or from a designer's point of view, you know, that is your chance to kind of showcase your collection and sell the clothes. And that's really what fashion week is about, isn't it? It's about the buyers coming in and actually the industry. It's not necessarily about celebrities sitting on front rows. It's more about the actual designer and the buyer and that, that kind of relationship. I was concerned when they said they were going to do it all digitally because I just, think that you can't if you can't feel the fabric you can't see how it moves with your own eyes you can't feel the weight of it I worried that you know maybe his designers didn't get the uptake of sales that they would normally get I mean is that would you say in terms of the fashion industry would, would that be a worry for you as well as to the state of the industry and where where they go from now as with any industry I think the in particular fashion industry has taken a huge hit the economy has just has taken a huge blow and like you were saying before, um, with designers, from design to distribution, they have to do it in advance with, with the seasons. And when the season's passed and we're on this pandemic, it's been a complete game changer. A lot of people now dress for practicality. The fashion movement has changed during this these lockdown months. So people are sort of adapting to their environment and they're not going to go out and buy what they would have bought. So I think they have definitely taken a huge blow 
and have lost out on quite a lot. And like I said, you know, I know we're coming out of lockdown soon to boost the economy, but at the same time, the, it's, it's almost like we've had another a second recession and we have to build that economy up again. Definitely. I think one good thing that I do think has come out of it is that it's almost broken the cycle of presenting two collections, you know, and people are now looking at um, having longevity with their collections from a more sustainable point of view. So, you know, you look at, um, I think it was Gucci that that said, right, we're only going to do one collection and we're going to make that basically last for, for, for the whole season. And I think that's a great idea because obviously fashion does contribute an awful lot to, you know, landfill and destruction of the planet because we're so concentrated with how it's produced and how it's distributed. So I think there's an element of sustainability that we can kind of celebrate and think, okay, well, you know, we're having to rethink these things and potentially if we can have a collection that is one collection and, and can last much longer then that's better than kind of producing, 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 producing all the time. Because I do get worried about fast fashion and I get worried about the high street then trying to copy what the the high-end designers have done, but do it for like five and six pounds. For me, that's a big concern. I worry about that. What would you say to that? For for me, I've always... been a bit of an old soul and I do tend to wear a lot of vintage clothes because I think they're made very well and like you were saying we live in a day and age where we want everything instantly we want it yesterday with online e-commerce work you know um businesses and having next day delivery you could order it at, at 10 to midnight and get it the next day and because of the fast-paced society and world we live in the fashion industry have to keep up with that hence why they have to produce clothes really quickly and because of that the quality does um the quality and the cost of that does suffer and i think that is a real problem because but on the flip side i think people are becoming more consciously aware of of, of everything and, and quite savvy with with health with beauty and with fashion and i think people are actively now looking for sustainable fashion because it needs to have longevity it needs to last i've always i've never really followed followed the trends bang on i've always felt worn what i feel right for the occasion and the environment if i like something i will buy it but my habits always been in a shop and i've been followed by security so many times it's because i will always turn the lay i'll always turn the inside out and check how it's made is it overlocked or is it binding how has it been finished off the amount of times they think i'm just looking for a security tag so i can lick it and <laughs> i've nearly been thrown out of shops because of it but i think it is really important and people are clocking on to that and becoming more savvy like I said um, and becoming aware of that because I've I believe in recycling upcycling I used to own a vintage jewelry company myself so I don't like waste and it's it's quite scary and alarming to know how much pollution we are creating yeah I was going to speak to you about your um because you had your own store and everything didn't you which again I've just it was it was an online store and as soon as I launched it the acting career kicked off (laughs) So I had to close the business down. I did go around theatres and sell a lot of my jewellery. But back then, there wasn't. we didn't have social media. We didn't have Instagram. It was 2010. I set the business up. It was absolutely my favourite thing to do. I remember making, whilst I was making the transition from costume to acting, I got my first theatre job and um, then didn't work for a year. And I was depressed. And through depression, this was my outlet. And that's how I created the business. 
I think it's really important to have kind of a side business when you're an actor. I really do. Because I think there's so many times where there's almost like dead time and you are waiting and I'm not very good at waiting around. <laughs> I'm like, I, I get to, I want to be busy. So I, I've, I've always said to young actors in particular, you know, always have that, that side, that second career, that's that side kind of outlet. Yeah, it is definitely have. Um, you need to divert your attention to something else. Otherwise, you become obsessed with working. Um, even when I left Coronation Street, I was aware that this could happen again because obviously I've worked previously, gone in and out of jobs and then not worked for long spells of time. And I did give myself a good talk and go, it's okay. It's okay to be patient. It's okay to wait for the right job. Yes, I was lucky enough to be offered so many jobs when I did come out of Cory, but I felt like it was really important in order to have longevity and respect in the industry to be very careful and pick out jobs and eventually I did land a job but because of, <laughs> um, I landed an amazing job because of lockdown I literally came straight back from London two days later so I'm still Aww. waiting to con- continue filming <laughs> but I felt it was really important to take that time and be and try and be patient because I like yourself I'm so impatient um, but the good quality of having their impatience is you are you're good at adapting to change and I, I, I really did take my time and took that time out and focus on other things that I wanted to, to explore. And like you said, you need that outlet on the side of acting because it's the best job in the world when you're working and it's the worst job when you're not. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it, it, protecting your mental health, how, how does that like, work for you? What, what do you do to do that? Because we, we all need to you know, make sure we're healthy and well and you know, we have positive mental health how does that manifest itself in in terms of of you I think I've had to not be so hard on myself but at the same time find the balance of discipline um give myself purpose every day so I remember saying this to one of my friends and it has worked for me for 10 years now every night before I go to bed I make a list of my phone on my notes about all the things I want to achieve the next day So when I do wake up in the morning and I'm not in work, I don't feel lost and I have purpose for the day. And then I just work through my list. It's really important. And also it's really important to communicate when you are feeling down, when you are in a dark place. 2010, I did go through, you know, when I I didn't work for a a year and and it was such a shock to me coming out of leaving my career in costume to then make transition to acting and then landing a job, landing a lead in a show and then not working again. And it was difficult to pick that up and, and digest it in a way so because I have experienced that before I felt stronger this time round and it's all about preparing for it but not being so hard on yourself even during lockdown I know what I'm like and I get bored easily and when I'm bored I get upset I'll create a problem that isn't there so for me it was about giving order and purpose to my daily routine and that's really helped studying sign language has really helped me it's something i absolutely love and enjoy it's it's so hard i didn't realize there's different accents and dialects as well so you different hand gestures so it's so it's so more it's a lot more complex than i thought but it really has given me focus and drive and i think that's key but also if there are days when i didn't want to do it i didn't i sat there and watched netflix all day and that's also okay and it is i think balance is key be good to yourself be good to your insides, be good, be good to your well-being because you can't see every task as a punishment. You're there to grow as a person and it's okay to have off days. Oh, well, sadly, as always, we've run out of time for today. But Bhavna, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with me and to chat to you. 
and I hope that you guys at home have enjoyed it as well. Don't forget, if you want to catch up with any of our previous podcast episodes, you can do so at the In Conversation page of our website or by subscribing to any of our podcast channels and YouTube. Don't forget to leave us your rates and reviews as we love hearing your feedback. And as ever, if you're in need of a fashion and beauty fix, you can also check out our regular fashion, wellbeing and lifestyle content at www.thecapsule.co.uk or by visiting our Instagram page. I'll be back next week with another wonderful special guest but today all that's left for us to say is goodbye so it's goodbye from Bavna bye and goodbye from me